we do turn our attention to the reading of Scripture. It comes to us today from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. I invite you to listen to this uh, little bit strange passage of Scripture this morning. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in His presence, and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at His right hand and the goats to His left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons, for I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. Then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I want to start with a little confession this morning. I love Christmas. Wednesday morning, I was driving the boys to school when we noticed the decorations going up out there at Hamburg, and Ollie was very excited about uh, the Christmas ornaments, as he calls them. And yesterday, we pulled out our boxes, and we decorated the house, and we ended up uh, with a movie to prime the pump, so to speak. And I confess this to you because while I love Christmas, I also join the chorus of folks who say, it's not Christmas yet, we ain't even touched the turkey. Let me say strongly, I agree with those cries. I've been, in fact, decrying the holiday decorations going up after Halloween for years. I heard one person say of this Christmas creep that they refused to listen to any Christmas until the turkey soup was on the stove and the pumpkin pie had been sliced and devoured. I get it. I get it. But Christmas creep isn't really about the nativity and baby Jesus. It's really about um, a different religion, hyper-consumerism, selling of Christmas, uh, a selling that we're already inundated with. I saw the first new car for Christmas commercial weeks ago. And the creep is so troubling because instinctively we know we are being refused the ability to be thankful we see all of this hitting so quickly. It, it, it's to this that we have been gifted this day in the church, Christ the King Sunday. It was first celebrated in 1926, not that long ago, and was established, and I quote, 
because of the rise of secularism, nationalism, and atheism in the greater world. This feast day of Christ the King is intended to remind the church, the body of Christ, that's you and I, that there is something far greater than all of these other substitutes which, which get us distracted, that claim our affection and our time and our resources. And it stands, this Christ the King, on the last day of the Christian year. Next Sunday is the beginning of Advent, which kicks off New Year's for us. Christ the King invites us to see once more who Jesus truly is. I mentioned him earlier, but N.T. Wright is an Anglican minister. He is my favorite theologian living today. And in the Anglican church, Christ the King Sunday is called Stirrup Sunday. Now for cowboys, Stirrup Sunday sounds different. For cooks, stirrup Sunday sounds different, but in the collect for the Anglican church, it begins this way. Stir up, we beseech thee, O Lord, the wills of thy faithful people. It's a stirring up today that's really about what we're, well, about this morning. In his book, How God Became King, Wright stirs us with this thought. There is a fundamental problem deep at the heart of the Christian faith and practice as I have known them. The problem can be summarized quite easily. We have all forgotten what the four Gospels are about. Yes, they're about Jesus, but what exactly are they saying about Jesus? Yes, they're about God, but what precisely are they saying about God? Yes, they are about the beginning of what later became known as Christianity. But what are they saying about that strong new movement? And how do they resource it for its life and work? We have all forgotten what the four Gospels are about. I don't know about you, but that's a little bit of a... Hard pill to swallow. Wright continues, what would it look like if we really believe that the living God was king on earth as in heaven? See, according to Wright, in the vast majority of the early church, fathers and mothers and theologians and saints, when Jesus ascended into heaven 40 days after the resurrection, he was actually inaugurating a brand new kingdom. And throughout the Gospels, we have these clear statements where Jesus himself self-reveals that he is indeed making all things new, that he is assuming the throne of creation. That is the story that all four gospels gospels are telling. Pilate understood it. He asked the question, are you not the king during Jesus's trial? They spoke kingdom language. The charges brought before Christ were of rebellion, of claiming kingship. The title Christ or Messiah is a Jewish way of saying king. On Palm Sunday, he was hailed with shouts of Hosanna in a triumphal entry. Jesus even claimed this title, son of man, which goes back to Daniel, a king Messiah figure. That was prophesied 500 years before the birth of Jesus. The agenda of the New Testament is very clear. Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection is one that establishes a new creation, a new kingdom. In Jesus, the early church publicly declared that everything is new and that the world as we see it is under brand new management. The point is that a new king is on the throne and he is ruling right now, even when it don't feel like it. 
The passage of scripture that I read a second ago, it drips with this kingdom language. It's clear that the author of this gospel assumes, first off, that Jesus is king. He's got a throne. He's one who sits in glory. Comes right out of Daniel 7. It's, in the ancient world, it's a king's job to separate his subjects. Jesus does that thing right here. And notice that all are under the reign of the king. It's not just the believers. All are living in his domain, whether they know it or not. One group, the Adelphos, or the family members, brothers and sisters, are called the righteous, and the other, the people, the other, are called the cursed. The righteous will inherit or live within his kingdom. The cursed are going to be marched off into some punishment of fire. Now, it's easy to get caught up on the judgment part, right? Ooh, love that one, preacher. Thanks for bringing that one this morning. But to do that is really to miss the point of this passage. To do so, to think only about judgment and heaven and hell stuff, it's to needlessly worry and speculate. The point of the king's actions here is that the king's people act like the king. See, he's a king who's looking for people who decidedly live in king-like ways. The behaviors that King Jesus judges even are different from any other king. This king doesn't care about territories or warring, conquering military machines. This King Jesus kingdom advances through a believer's care for the hungry and thirsty, for the rescue of a stranger or an illegal immigrant, clothing the naked, healing the sick, offering lives to those who are in prison. And this kingdom care for hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, in prison actually starts with the brothers and sisters. Those who are in the midst of all that stuff right here, right now. It's like he's saying, if you can't take care of your own kingdom family, how can you take care of anybody else? I said this the last several weeks. Look around you. See that person next to you? That's your brother and sister. The people behind you, even the one that's annoying you, I'm not looking at anybody specific. (laughs) It's your brother or sister. It's your family. Kingdom people watch out for kingdom people, and then they extend that to other people, and it's a big deal. The kingdom isn't just a social program. It's so much larger than that. Kingdom people are really different. They live in a way that others look at up and they go, whoa, wait a minute. See, they may be broken, but they're not like the brokenness all around them. They're becoming something new, something remarkable, something that looks like their king. The New Testament writers understood this, and their record supports that the king's people have a different everything about them. They have a different identity, a different way about them. When I was really young, my parents got divorced. My mom remarried, and I was eventually adopted by my stepfather. Now, in the circles that I grew up, mom, dad, and I uh, all wore a distinctive badge that made us different from many of my friends and family members. See, we were titled with divorced and even blended. We were different from a lot of other folks in our church, and even my extended family talked in hushed tones of divorced or adopted. Because I was adopted, I eventually came to grips with this story, this narrative that went like this. My, 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 my dad wanted me, but my father gave me up. He didn't want me. 
The narrative, uh, while I was proud of my new name of Nichols, I didn't want to go back to something, but there was something truly that stung about not being good enough of not being wanted, not being worthy of love or of time. And I took those ideas and I let them define me. If I wasn't good at something, I would either fake it or not even try. I might have appeared energetic and friendly, but it was a mask for this deep fear of not being liked. I was a Christian. I believed in Jesus and that God loved me and even wanted me to be God's child. But I was also scared to death of the wrath and judgment that were just, I was sure, seconds away from telling me I didn't measure up, wasn't good enough, and was only loved because God had to love me. Deep down, I knew God didn't really like me. He may have been a king, but not one I wanted to hang out with. He may have died for me, but I was pretty sure my sin still made him mad all the time. See, I had a bad narrative of God that became a big piece, a major piece of my identity. If I had this wall that defined me, then it had all of these names and titles on it, slapped on it, that I believed were who I was. My wall was full, and sure, there were some good things on there, but there were more things that were horrible Not long ago, I went to a training that turned out to be something very different than I had intended. Most trainings that I go to are pretty boring, quite frankly. Some of the pastors in the room are going, yeah, pretty much. But the opening session of this training was so powerful that I couldn't concentrate on a single thing the rest of the time I was there. I just realized, Rick, we were at this training together. The presenter walked up to her computer and she pushed a button and a word popped up on the screen that was behind her. And the word was this, COGPOW, C-O-G-P-O-W. That's not a word. But she then spent the next hour discussing it. Those six little letters, they wrecked me. See, I had graduated with my biblical studies degree, my master's divinity, which just means I've got a lot of debt. was a licensed local pastor on my way to ordination. I had led successful ministries, led people to Christ, and helped others discern a call to full-time ministry. But those little letters, those six letters, made me rethink everything. And they opened doors to authors and ideas that I had long since pushed to the side. Those letters, they declare something, uh, they declare a very different identity. One that if I don't choose to own, sometimes daily, sometimes moment by moment, then I'm basically denying the identity of Christ. What? See, to the church at Rome, Paul says this, you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. If I'm to believe what the gospels say, that Jesus is king, then I have to hear that his work of saving me is actually a work of adoption. And if I'm adopted by the Father of Jesus, and if I'm a co-heir with Christ of God's glory, 
then all the other titles and roles that have been slapped on me, on my wall of me, they've got to go. I I can't be failure or not good enough or doesn't measure up or unwanted or divorced kid or not athletic enough or not good looking enough or any of those other things that I could be. I can't. Because if it's true, which again, to say that it's not, seems to be calling God and the scriptures both a bunch of liars, then I can only be one thing. C-O-G-P-O-W, Cogpow, a child of God, a person of worth. I am the son of the God whose favorite name is Daddy. I am the son of a God who is crazy about me, his kid. I am a child of the God who calls me his beloved. And if I'm that child, then my worth, my value, my very essence is more than what anybody else could ever say about me. And if I'm a cogpal, child of God, person of worth, I can hear these words of Scripture, this final judgment, this sheep and goat separation, and I can live in the kingdom in a kingdom kind of way. See, I'm secure as this child of God, this person of worth, then feeding the hungry and offering drink to the thirsty and assisting the stranger and clothing the naked and healing the sick and offering life to the prisoner. You know what those are? They're just simple outflows of me. Actually, they're, they're outflows of the me that I'm becoming, the me that looks a whole lot like the king. The kingdom people are a different kind of people than the rest of the world. They act differently and they live ways that are revolutionary to this broken system around us. I want to offer you a sneak peek at something. It's an invitation to be a kingdom people. Do you want to know it? You're going to get it anyway, so you might as well say yes. 2007, I hated Christmas. I hated the creep of Christmas, but I also hated Christmas just as much. It was a a season of over-everything, over-spending, over-eating, over-planning, over-exhaustion. I heard a pastor say, can Christmas still change the world? And my answer would say, why would it? But then a question began to churn in my soul. What if Christmas was never supposed to be like this? What if the kingdom of Jesus was never meant to be celebrated as if we're worshiping at a mall rather than at a manger? What if I chose to celebrate the birth of the Savior in a way that mimicked how God celebrated the birth of the Savior? I read a book that December that was entitled The Advent Conspiracy. The funny thing is I couldn't even afford the book, but I bought it anyway. It was written by some pastors who were having the same struggle as I was, the same discontentment that I shared. They said, what if instead we gave Christmas away, made it about Jesus rather than making it about me and consuming whatever I could get my hands on? I said, what if, what if we worship fully? What if we spent less but gave more? What if we found out that love really was more than enough? What if we acted as if we were a part of a different kingdom. So on the eve of a new Christian year, 
in a time of thankfulness, in a time when the worship of consumption is in full swing, I want to invite you into a New Year's journey with me. I want to invite you first off to claim your title as child of God, person of worth. When all those other things come to you, when those voices and those titles come back, I want you to go, oh, oh, nope, nope, cog pal. Write it on your mirror, write it on your door, write it wherever you have to so that you can be owned by that title. But then beyond this cog pal, I want to invite you this year on the eve of Black Friday. Ugh. I want to invite you to give Christmas away. We're going to talk more about this in the weeks to come, but you can go just out the hallway here to my right, to your right as you go out, and you're going to see three ways in which you can join a kingdom movement and a conspiracy this Advent season. Three ways to feed, clothe, support, and share life with those in need. The most vulnerable, all three of them, working with children. I believe in doing so, we may just find that Christmas can indeed still change the world. Each week, we're going to talk about one of these four tenets of the Advent conspiracy. And each week, you're going to be invited to find a way to give Christmas away. Each week, you're going to have an opportunity to truly celebrate and anticipate the birth of the King. I am so looking forward to this journey with you, friends. This is not pastor speak or overstatement. This conspiracy is why I went from hating Christmas to loving it. But it has to begin this way. What titles, roles, names that you've been called in your life, is it time to drop? Is it time to let go so that you can be the cog pal, the child of God, the person of worth, that God has invited you to be. You may have heard people say, I'm searching for only God knows what. You may have a story or two like mine. You may feel today an enormous stress that says, if you blow this, then you're worthless. You may feel like you don't measure up. You may believe that your entire identity hinges on what you do. And then what happens? If so, hear this paraphrase from 1 John. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called the children of God. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're, tr we're living truly, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there is something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once that's taken care of and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we're bold and free before God. We're able to stretch our hands out and receive what we ask for because we're doing what he said, doing what pleases our king. Would you pray with me? Oh, Abba Father, we are so thankful that you are in Jesus King. What an incredible word for us to know and to hold on to. For people who live in a democracy and don't have a king, we don't have to worry who's elected. You are on the throne. Your rule is secure. 
your kingdom unshakable. Your adoption of us true and real. So Lord, all those other titles, all those other roles, all the other names that we call ourselves or have been called, they get to go away. Because you see us as your children. Sons and daughters of God. People of incredible worth. Lord, I pray that you would lodge this truth in our hearts and in our minds so that this week, wherever we go, whatever criticisms we may find ourselves in the midst of, whatever distractions or hurt or pain we may experience, draw us back to being your children and finding our worth in you. We love you, King Jesus, and we are so thankful and excited to celebrate this season conspiring. As we say each and every week in your prayer, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our King, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.